0: Hey, what's going on, guys? My guest today is a fascinating guy. He runs Fungia Farm. He's also a member of the Humboldt Bay Mycological Society. I had an absolute blast talking with him. We talked all about mushrooms, the incredible benefits that they have, the incredible things that they do. Just just really fascinating stuff. I had a great time. I think you guys will really like this episode. So please give it up for LeVon Durr. Yeah, I didn't know that you actually owned a mushroom farm.
1: Yeah, yeah. How did
0: how did that all
1: start? well i was really into wild crafting you know when i was younger and just picking chanterelles selling the restaurants you know and then bought some mycology books you know david aurora's book demystified and <clears throat> oh we turn that off yeah. and um and you know started learning more about wild mushrooms and and then years later it was living working on an organic farm and they were cultivating shiitake mushrooms on logs and i was like wow that's really cool you know how how neat would that be to you know grow your own mushrooms and then started reading books and went to a conference and saw paul stamets say, uh, speak at the bioneers conference in uh 99 1999 or something I was just amazed with his whole production, medicinal mushrooms, micro-remediation, you know, tinctures. Let I me mean, turn this phone off. No problem. Let me turn this ringer off.
0: And so how, how long have you been doing this? I mean, just working with mushrooms and, and yeah, fun- foraging for
1: them. Yeah, Fungi Farm, we uh, we officially had kind of launched in 2011 okay yeah and and uh, got our laboratory going our, our first goals was to produce spawn and you know eventually for ourselves to produce you know mushroom production but also to sell spawn to homeowners and commercial growers and backyard growers and teach workshops so we kind of focused on grain spawn and plug spawn which is basically just uh, a, a, the substrate to transfer the mycelium onto its next, you know, host its next home, um, and so we do little dowels with little furniture dowels that we grow mycelium on, and then we drill holes and plug logs, and we grow uh, organic wheat berries. You know, we buy organic wheat berries and grow mycelium on it, and then that can be transferred onto sawdust or on a straw and grow mushrooms on the sawdust and straw. So,
0: I got to stop you there. You're talking to a layperson. I have no idea what mycelium is, what any of that
1: really yeah, entails. Yeah. So, can you
0: walk me through that kind of that kind of process of what what you goes bet. into it?
1: You bet. So, so you have this organism, you know, the the this this, you know, fungal organism. And mostly what everybody's familiar with is what's called the fruiting bodies, which is equated to like the apple on the tree. That's okay. the that's the fruit of this organism. Uh, the, the, the large organism itself is either living in the substrate, like in a rotting tree or in the ground, communicating with trees, you know, and trading nutrients through a symbiotic relationship with trees. And so you have two basic, you know, families that most people are familiar with, and that's mycorrhizal fungi that is like chanterelles and matsutakis and hedgehogs. And those grow like in that symbiotic relationship. So they trade uh, nutrients, uh, a lot of times like minerals and things with the tree in exchange for sugars, for carbohydrates. And so they work out this whole like stock market exchange. You know, we're still learning a lot about this process, but um, they basically, uh, you know, the tree becomes this, this, this you know this symbiotic give and take quid pro quo for this fungal organism and they fuse their mycelium which is the vegetative part of the fungus which is this cobwebby you know often white thready uh little hyphae that fuse together with the roots you know in this mycorrhizal scenario they actually wrap in, wrap around the roots and actually enter into the root cell and they exchange nutrients. So when you do that and a tree has roots that go out, you know, 15 feet or something, and then you have mycelium going out another 15 feet and connecting to other mycelium that goes out another 15 feet that connects to other trees. And you end up with this underground internet network that that is looking more and more like this really interesting sort of like stock exchange where people put things up for sale and say, you know, Hey, I have a lot of carbohydrates. One tree's really doing really well with its photosynthesis. It's cranking up lots of sugars. And it says, you know, who wants to exchange for some minerals? And then this fungal network over here is like, I want to exchange. I'll exchange. I have a lot. I can get you a bunch of minerals. And so they'll retain water. They'll exchange nutrients. And they basically become this interconnected network of the whole forest. Right? Okay. And then in the case of sapphiridic fungi, like what we most of the things that we cultivate: oyster mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, lion's mane, maitake, nameko, they're just wood digesters. So they secrete enzymes and they break down lignins and cellulose to extract the sugars. And so it's a much more simplistic process that we can mimic by taking the mycelium and giving it some cellulose to eat. Or some and that's,
0: that's where the dowels and the sawdust and stuff come exactly. in. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is it just easier to grow those types of mushrooms? Is that why you guys, you don't really see the other type grown is because you need almost like a living organism to, exactly. to supplement it with? So the one
1: example we have is... That is commercially cultivated and only because it's worth, you know, a thousand dollars a pound is the uh, Italian truffles. And those have now made it over to the US and are being commercially cultivated. Supposedly, there's a spot in California and Oregon and somewhere in the Southeast in the United States. And they literally inoculate baby hazelnut trees with the mycorrhizal fungi of the truffle, specifically the Italian truffle. We do have native truffles here, but the Italian, the, the European truffles is much more highly prized and supposedly more aromatic and, and that's what the chefs want, right? And our truffles over here can fetch, you know, $80 a pound, $100 a pound. And those truffles over there can fetch, you know, $800 a pound, $1,000 a pound. Um, And so those hazelnut seedlings are planted out in orchards, and it takes like 15 years for them to wait for the truffles to the trees to mature, the truffles to grow, and then they train little dogs to go sniff the truffles out.
0: Oh, wow. So you're in it. You're in it for the
1: long haul at that point. Right. These places are like no one even knows the location of these truffle farms it's like top secret you know oh wow Um, and it's look it's really interesting because it's kind of looking like it might kind of be like the wine of you know i was just thinking that wine yeah Half the valley how california was like we have wine and you know italy and spain and they were like push oh gosh who's gonna want to drink that you know you you know, this is where the wine, this is where the champagne is grown. This is where the Zinfandel is grown. And now California's boom. It's on the map. You know, it's like, people we like go. yeah, so good quality wine.
0: What is the difference between just a mushroom and
1: a truffle? Right. So truffles are a really interesting uh, um, um, Noah, a, a mycologist that uh, comes up here in the area. He wrote the um, Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast. Um, what's his last name Um, and he just did a great um, Noah Siegel this is a book he did with uh, Christian Schwartz it's just like the best book we have now for um, mushrooms of the Redwood coast that we have you know from Oregon to the Bay Area it's like our bioregion of the redwoods the coastal redwood mushrooms you know so it's just like the most up-to-date accurate book he just did a great talk on the Humboldt Bay Mycological Society's Myco Blitz week instead of you know, the usual fair, we had the, um, the online you know, uh, virtual mushroom fair. And he just did a great talk about truffles. So it's a real new field for me. I don't know that much about it, but what seems to happen is these mushrooms that often did create above ground fruiting bodies due to climate and weather And just adaptability started, you know, producing these underground fruiting bodies that were getting dug up and eaten by rodents and dispersed. And their spores were getting dispersed, often by little pieces getting dropped. And the spores' ability to live through the GI tracts of squirrels decided over, you know, thousands and thousands of years... Why push up above ground where it's hot and dry and wet and things step on me and animals eat me, you know, and my fruiting bodies get damaged before I mature. These truffles adapted to this mammalian relationship of little squirrels and rodents and, and, and humans too, digging these up and eating them and spreading them around. And so that became its spore dispersal instead of producing a fruiting body by pushing it up out of the ground and then dispersing its spores that way. So it it's really trippy. I mean, this presentation he did, you can see mushrooms that are like inverting in back into like going to a truffle. Like they still kind of look like a mushroom, but then they just don't come out of the ground anymore. Huh. So yeah. it was like an evolutionary advantage. Yeah. To, to fend off predators. Yeah. And, and, and really, and, and, and fires and, and droughts and, you know, and all yeah. these and floods and, you know, animals stepping on you before you can mature and disperse your spores, you know? So really, really interesting. New Zealand has some really bizarre fungal bird relationships where they've adapted to be eaten by all the, because the, they have, you know, they don't have um, a, a, a lot of land predators, so they have all these ground birds there, and so all these mushrooms have turned into things that look like berries and look like food that are just tiny little, almost truffle-like mushrooms that don't even grow into full fruiting bodies anymore that the birds eat, and it passes through the birds' GI tract, and And disperses the spores that way so
0: it's incredible how they how you know different types of fungus have adapted methods like that right to spread their spores i mean you have that i can't think of the scientific name for it but it's like coined the zombie fungus right and it spreads its spores and if an ant hits it it kind of takes over the ant's nervous system and can control the ant and tries to walk it back to its colony so that it can infect the whole colony. And if ants they can kind of sense, I think through pheromones that, you know, one of their ants is infected and they'll move it farther away from the colony so that the rest of the colony is protected. I mean, that's that's incredible that they can do that.
1: Yeah. That you would adapt to attack something's nervous system, but not kill it right away to drive it crazy enough to either, yeah, go back to the colony or some um some bugs will climb really high up trees, that higher than they usually go, and which is a great spore dispersal spot. And then clamp onto the tree, and then the mushroom will fruit out of the insect. And yeah, Cordyceps are one of the big families. Yeah, that.
0: Yeah, all in the name of of reproduction and trying to yeah. spread yourself as far as you can.
1: Yes, yes. You just hope they don't take liking to us like that. Or
0: something. Yeah. Right. Well, that's. Um. Have you heard about? you know, the theory regarding like our body temperature and how 98.6, it's the perfect temperature to fend off fungus. And yet we're not burning too many calories and keeping ourselves that warm. Yes. I mean, that's, it's insane when you think about that and how global warming and the warming temperatures and you have fungus that are adapting to these warmer temperatures and what that could mean if you extrapolate it to us, you know?
1: Yeah. And what that means over Eons and eons, when you really look and understand that some of the most advanced life forms very early on were these fungal colonies. And so to to get in a relationship, you know, to either not become a host or to eat them as food or whatever, quickly became uh, dependent upon your relationship with with fungus, you know, whether you were a tree whether you were, you know, uh, an insect or or a mammal, um, and and how we how how it drove evolution, you know, through through time and and developed ecosystems.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they think that's why mammals thrived after the asteroids that wiped out the dinosaurs. Right? One theory is that the asteroid hit, and as a result of all these decomposing bodies, fungus thrived and it was everywhere. And because of mammals body temperatures, they were able to come out and kind of thrive in that environment because the fungus wouldn't, wouldn't hurt us like it would a reptile where it could, or an ant or, you know, these different organisms.
1: Yeah. And of course, you know, there's parasitic fungi that, you know, attack trees and, and attack reptiles and, and, you know, cause infections in humans and, you know, and, and just like viruses and the virus we're dealing with right now, but more often than not, what you see is sort of this with those type of, you know, fungi and, and viruses and things, you know, you see this sort of wolf in, in, the, in, in the ecosystem where, of course, you know, there's honey mushrooms, ameliorio that attacks trees. But when you go in a healthy ecosystem, it's not killing the forest. It's just over here on this one tree. Mm-hmm. But when you tree farm, you know, tons of trees, and they're stressed from drought, and you have insect attacks, and you have fungal attacks. And then you hear about, you know, the the fear that the forest industry has of this parasitic fungus. And you're like, well, that's existed forever. And it wasn't wiping out forests on the planet, just like viruses weren't like wiping out mammals, it was just kind of keep it keeps them in check you know so to speak when populations rise up when ecosystems get damaged and so a lot of these things uh especially like sapphoitic fungi when you when you step back and look at the the bird take a bird's eye view of the ecosystem and you see that say for instance of you know do you use oyster mushrooms as a, a common mushroom what what is it striving to do in this ecosystem and it's it's breaking down these cellulose and lignin walls of this wood faster than just about anything else on the planet can, turning it into mulch and effectively, then bacteria and other fungi turning it into and insects and vertebrates turning it into soil. And that soil is feeding those trees, which is growing more food for the fungus, the oyster mushrooms, you know? And so, you you see the 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 motivation and the intention that these these you know these organisms have to create diversity and to create ecological balance and and equilibrium in the systems and which is also just as amazing when you look at the ability of oyster mushroom to break down hydrocarbons like how did that come about you know the 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 ability to molecularly disassemble chemicals and really complex compounds to dissolve it, you could simply just say, oh, it just wanted to get the carbohydrates out of that wood. It just wanted to get the carbohydrates out of that hydrocarbon. And sure, that's a simplistic way to look at it. But Again, taking that bird's eye view and looking at the big picture and you say, well, the 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 more toxins you can break down in the environment, the more wood you can break down in the environment, the more soil and biodiversity you create, you're going to grow more trees. And the more trees that fall and start and become food for the fungus, the more the fungus can thrive, you know? So there's 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 a there's an intention there that i that I think is really important to look at
0: I had no idea that they were able to break down hydrocarbons I've never heard of that before yeah is that a fairly recent
1: discovery or has that been known for a long time it's been it's been pretty prevalent you know for the last like 20 years or so there's been a lot of great research of course people you know have known that even longer and have tested it but there's there's been some really good research books that you know, come out in the last you know 15, 20, maybe even thirty years, um, and just looking at the ability of different yeasts and molds and you know and fungi and what they can do to break down different compounds of you know specifically like man-made chemicals, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, again, you know, it's it's the it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon that it can even do that. Um, of course oyster mushrooms aren't looking for hydrocarbons they're not flying you know sporulating around the world looking for hydrocarbons but it's really interesting to think about what a what oil is what you know what petroleum the base of petroleum is it 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 is or, or rotten organic matter you know if you go back far enough right yeah you know compressed in the earth and you know all that you know chemistry that happens but still just on a basic level and so when I was researching this and kind of looking at hydrocarbon molecules and looking at lignin molecules you're like wow I can I can see how this isn't that far off for something as powerful as a oyster mushroom you know mycelium's enzymes these enzymes they produce are really, really strong that, you know, these peroxidases, they basically, you know, eat, they basically dissolve the substrate as the hyphae excretes this and, and then is able to eat the substrate as it runs through. So, you know, the fact that, like I said, oyster mushrooms are not looking to find an oil field to eat, but, it's more than willing to do that creating the if you can create the right environment and create a nice hospitable you know moisture and temperature and humidity and everything for that mycelium to grow it will gladly tear those hydrocarbons down to base salts and release the gases and eat those sugars right out of the hydrocarbon are there any efforts to try to I don't know. Capitalize
0: on that in the sense of like these oil spills you you hear about that happen fairly frequently. You know that seems like a great environmental way to try to clean it up and have minimal
1: impact. You know, definitely. We've we've helped. We've assisted in a, a couple projects in, around Humboldt County. One that we did. The reports on our website, uh, fungiofarm.com, um, uh, out in Orleans. Uh, the mid Klamath Watershed Council recently took ownership of this building back in 2011, uh, right downtown in Orleans in northeast Humboldt County. And behind the building was a backup generator and a diesel fuel storage tank that had been leaking uh, for years and had caused uh, the ground to become saturated with um, diesel fuel. And so that fuel was excavated and and layered with that contaminated soil was layered with mycelium that we grew for them um, uh, through, you know, sort of like a lasagna compost pile um, through, you know, with the soil and and treated and, that, you know, with the oyster mycelium to break the hydrocarbons down. And they were able to not have, you know, have to dispose of the soil, um, which is unfortunately, like often the cheapest default, you know, method that people do is just to take the soil and put it in a class B lined landfill. Um, in this case down South or over East in Reading, um, we don't even, you know, have a landfill anymore in, in Homo County. Uh, but again, you know, you're burying these hydrocarbons in this, you know, extremely anaerobic environment in the ground where- Which
0: doesn't solve anything.
1: Biology can't get to. Yeah. And it's our, you know, capitalistic culture that thinks we're throwing something away when there is no away. That's just somebody else's watershed. And you can pretty much put a ticking time bomb on when that'll end up in their, you know, water system. Maybe it's 200 years, maybe it's 2000 years, but- That's not going anywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. And another beautiful thing about the project was that it was Karuk tribal land and ancestral land right there. And they needed to monitor the soil disturbance of that area was right next to the Klamath River. And that soil would have had to been sifted through for you know, archaeologically, you know, significant area that soil would have been sifted through for artifacts. And so it wasn't even really a great option to throw it away, you know. So to get back to answering your question. So, you know, there are there are other remediation techniques where they, you know, steam the soil, ozonate the soil, expose the soil to air, uh, sunlight, Let the chemicals break down that way. There's solvent um, that they can pour in that'll slowly that are kind of like what the mycelium produces. Some of them, they they dissolve the the chemicals and will help them break down and then allow you know nature to then do its you know magic and break it down enough to be you know non toxic for the site. A lot of times they pour concrete over it and just cap it. That's another like legal method, you know, if it's not leaching into groundwater or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll case it, you know, with concrete seal it um, depends on the location and, and where it's at. So, you know, it's, it's to answer your question about why isn't it done more? Why isn't it capitalized on there is a, a couple companies that have patented this technology. So that's one of the, you know, roadblocks there's also the the mindset that we have that everything's going to be really fast and digging it up and hauling it away is really fast um you know our project out in orleans and another project we did for a local landowner she wanted to remediate some motor oil that had spilt on our property both these both these projects took two years to complete you know and so you know, a lot of times people propose, you know, soil removal or uh, solvent or whatever that are supposed to treat the, the problem faster. Um, not necessarily cheaper, you know, it's sort of like clean energy as the price of fossil fuels go up, the price of solar panels come down, we see more, you know, clean energy being produced, right? It's the same thing with, you know, e- ecological methods like this, the, the, the higher cost for landfill disposal, um, removal, hazardous waste permits, all that stuff starts driving the technology for people to look for other answers. Uh, landfills filling up and closing down and people not wanting to build more landfills. Uh, so these are, these are things that I think will drive the need for more on-site biological solutions.
0: Are, what are the byproducts that the fungi are releasing, you know, in this case, as they're breaking down the the oil and yeah. stuff?
1: Well, one of the misconceptions, is should probably clarify, too, is when we talk about fungal remediation, it, we're primarily in this instance with the hydrocarbons, we're talking about just growing mycelium. There's mm-hmm. no fruiting bodies. Again, you know, the mushroom. Um, itself, the, the fruiting body you see, the portabella you buy at the store is the fruiting body. We're not fruiting oyster mushrooms in most cases. Um, so when the mycelium comes in contact with the hydrocarbons, they're doing the same thing they're doing to the, to the lignins in the wood. They're, the hyphae secretes the enzymes. The enzymes slowly start dissolving the hydrocarbon molecules and they want to get that sugar out of there, just like they want to get that sugar, that carbohydrate out of the lignins in the wood. They want to, they they want to get that carbohydrate out. So what you end up is there's, you know, gases that are produced. There's, there's water, obviously, in, you know, oil, and and there's uh, salts. And so when when all said and done, you're in, you're you're back to these base minerals, at, in the soil gases that have been released and and water that's been produced
0: now when you say these these mushrooms aren't producing fruit is that by design are you guys using a mushroom that doesn't fruit or is that just the type of mushroom that would break down these hydrocarbons
1: yeah we 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 are using we're actually using our favorite white commercial oyster mushroom that we grow for food because it's mm-hmm. just so aggressive you know um, but we're in, in the two projects that we, you know, uh, supplied the mycelium for, they, we, they, they never produced fruiting environment for the mushrooms. So we never, we never created the environment where the mushrooms would be fruiting. We covered it with plastic, you know, the time of year, um, the, the humid, you know, the temperatures in the pile. Um, a, a woman was doing an experiment with some contaminated soil in Arcata and she did it like right at the perfect time of the year last fall and she used so much straw that that she and the pile actually fruited you know mushrooms it's a beautiful picture and people like that that's so exciting and there's nothing wrong with that because of course the mushrooms will attract insects and insects will attract birds, and, you know, the whole evolution of life is starting again, just like we were kind of, you know, I was talking about with that bird's eye view of fungi's role in in ecosystems, Um, and so that's a beautiful process, but we're really, really focusing on, you know, in, in the projects we did of not leaching the piles from rain, um, you know, you know, not having any people having access to the contamination, you know, contaminated soils, um, you know, and, and really trying to contain this environment by, you know, covering everything with plastic and opening it up to breathe and watering it when, when needed and stuff like that. So in those cases, we just didn't create those conditions to, to, fruit the mushrooms, which is not what we were striving for. Mm -hmm.
0: If you guys did want to fruit the mushrooms, would you be able to eat them where they're, you know, they're feeding off those hydrocarbons or would that not play
1: a role in that? That's, that's, that's a good question, Nick. I, you know, I've read a few articles on this and uh, if, if there was no heavy metals in the motor oil or in, you know, which there often is, if there's like a generator or it's used motor oil or whatever, there is metals from the engine, you know, that, that, you know, was working as the oil was in there with, you know, with all the gears and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the, the interesting, you know, thing about fungi is, you know, they, they are full of protein and minerals, you know, contrary to what we thought, you know, 100 years ago or whatever about mushrooms, they're loaded with nutrients and vitamins and minerals. Those minerals that they bioaccumulate, just like they'll, mycorrhizal fungi will accumulate those to trade with trees. They'll also pump those up into their fruiting bodies. And so mushrooms have been looked at as a means of bioaccumulation for heavy metals and radioactive isotopes um, out of contaminated areas. Again, you have to create those fruiting conditions. So that's much more tricky than just growing the mycelium. Um, But uh, so, you know, say for instance, that Orleans project, yes, there was clean diesel fuel that had soaked into the ground but there was also a generator right there that had been leaking motor oil. Uh, yeah. And then, and then what else was happening in that parking lot out there? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. You <laughs> wouldn't want that in your
1: system. Was there burn piles? Was there, you know, trash barrels? Was the, I don't know what happened in the last 200 years in that backyard there. So you would have to do a metals test. You would want to test the fruiting bodies themselves. And it definitely was con- a concern that you don't want someone walking by the pile and being like, look, oyster mushrooms. Mm-hmm. You know? So we, we had signs up about what the project was and, you know, that it was hazardous and waste.
0: <laughs> Tying back into the landfill situation, because that's just, that's a mess if you ever look at one. Right, And uh, a lot of people say that, that you know, that does block, the natural breakdown of our trash and all these decomposing fruits and you know our food, and that we should just let that decompose how it would naturally and let fungus take it over and let all these natural processes occur because that's that's what nature intended that's how it's supposed to be broken down, whereas mm-hmm. now we're just sticking it under the ground and letting it sit there, and it's not breaking down, and nothing's happening to it as opposed to you know letting nature take over is there are there, you know, are there pushes to let fungus take over that? I mean, I don't know how you would implement that on a large scale, but it seems like it'd be way more beneficial and, you know, especially to, to, to our land.
1: Right. Right. I mean, you know, that's a, that's a, a big subject, you know, our, our, our trash production and our consumption in the society and, you know, that at this point point we need like eight more planets to keep going how we're going right now i believe know? it um so but on a on a you know something like food waste i mean mm-hmm. that's just ridiculous you know we should have biogas digesters we have composting plants you know people everybody should have a home composter you know and that is letting bacteria and fungi do its job instead of giant landfills that just produce massive amounts of methane you know where they have to have flares going you know i remember i was i had tickets to a grateful dead show at shoreline that was rescheduled because the you know the whole amphitheater is built on a giant old dump and giant methane flares started coming out of the mountainside where the grass was you know where we see the concert you know um you know so yeah our our you know what to do with our plastic you know what to do with our construction waste you know i'm working with the local contractor that is is uh, we're doing some um, some trials on using construction waste to grow into mycelial, you know, mycelium fungal building materials, um, and and so we really need to focus on reducing and reusing before we look at the end the end result of our consumption, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like people, I get calls and people are saying, I have all this plastic, you know, I have all this plastic at my, at my farm. I have all this plastic, you know, leftover, you know, I have all this styrofoam. I, well, I read this article that fungus will break it down. And well, it, it is true. There was, you know, there's been a couple of cool studies. People come out with, they found a fungus growing on the rubber tree in the tropics and sure it breaks down you know, uh, natural latex rubber, well, guess what? It'll also break down your tires on your car, you know? And so it's like, again, just like with the micro remediation, you need to shred the tire up. You need to create the perfect environment for the fungus to grow. You need to be really patient. And over time, these things will slowly break them down. But if you just take that you know, tire that's lost its tread, and you're like, wait a second, this is an amazing amount of embedded energy in this tire right here, you know, and grinding it up and using it for a playground or for roadbed or for, you know, is like, and that's what we need to do with styrofoam, and that's what we need to do with building waste, and that's what we need to do with plastic and glass, mm-hmm. and all these things, you know, and that would, you know, reduce a huge amount of landfill. uh, Production and and then of course then the big the big question is why are we consuming so much junk?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and producing so much plastic when there really isn't a need. I mean, you can use hemp for ninety percent of what you use plastic for, and there's really just not a need. But we're so ingrained, and people don't have the patience or or the time to to really start investing in those in those ways.
1: As of now, we'll see. Hopefully, that'll change in the future, but. Why is Amazon sending me these, you know, bubble wrap plastic bags for one ink cartridge? Yeah. And yeah. Like,
0: bags in bags in yeah. bags in a box that makes like, no sense.
1: What's wrong with a cardboard envelope, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like right. Some shredded paper as a stuffing. Like we have answers already, you know? mm mm-hmm and my and fungus play can play a huge role in that too there's there's an amazing company that we've uh we've approached to uh hopefully uh license some of their technology from called ecovative design and they have contracts now with ikea to ikea wants to phase out their styrofoam for all their furniture packaging um and so they're growing the you know agri- using agricultural waste they're they're growing forms with the mycelium to hold the the, the shredded you know hemp and straw and sawdust together to replace styrofoam and then you have your package shows up you get out your new whatever cabinet your Ikea cabinet and you throw the packaging in your compost
0: oh wow I know correct me if I'm wrong I think I've heard that there are, there's a type of fungus that also breaks down radioactive waste too right
1: yeah you know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a really very good chemist, um, but my understanding is with metals and radioactive isotopes, they kind of sit, fit in that same category that they don't really change molecularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just move around the environment. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what happens, you know, in a supernova or something, you know, what, what transformations take place, you know, if you in the middle of the sun or something, but um, on uh, down here on earth, you know, lead and cadmium and, and, you know, mercury, they, they just move around. And mm-hmm. so j- they're, they're to a mushroom, they're basically just in that category of like a mineral again, and so is the radioactive isotopes. And Paul Stamets uh, had an article in his book, um, Mycelium Running, about this one mushroom, I think it was uh, Gumphus, that was bioaccumulating cesium-137 um, 10,000 times stronger in the fruiting body than the background levels that were in the soil. So it was actually the mycelium was channeling these radioactive isotopes up into this fruiting body. So now you have a radioactive mushroom. Oh
0: wow. And then what do you do with that? Right. right. That doesn't exactly solve the issue of, of cleaning up
1: the waste. It just it could it could help. I haven't read any articles about people implementing this for any kind of cleanup projects but it is a concern in mushroom cultivation, you know, where you cultivate the mushrooms and what substrates you're using and what kind of metals and toxins, you know, heavy metals are in the substrate and can end up in the fruiting bodies. Um, And it is a, it is a major concern, especially where you're sourcing your mushrooms from and what polluted environment they're growing in. Because now we're, you know, producing all kinds of you know, contaminants just from coal power plants and mining and, you know, in our waters and, and you know, strip mining and coal mining and coal burning and nuclear power plants and nuclear testing. And these things are actually showing up in the mushrooms. There was an article about 10 years ago where people started going back into the Chernobyl forests and collecting wild mushrooms. Porcini's, chanterelles, and the forest is like recovering in an amazing way. I don't know if you, you know, saw Doctor uh, Adam Adden- uh, Adamborough's uh, you know little episode where he went back into the Chernobyl abandoned restricted zone, and there's deer and there's wolves. Yeah, I heard and- the wildlife is all it's recovering. Well, so are the mushrooms, and they're full of radiation. Yeah, it set off a radiation Geiger counter detector in Europe at a port, a shipping container full of mushroom dried mushrooms.
0: Oh wow, all the mushrooms they picked from there. Oh man. Yeah. So
1: where are, where where's your food coming from? You know, where are your mushrooms coming from? On one hand, they're this wonderful, delicious fruiting, you know, you know, these fruiting bodies that are full of minerals. Well those minerals could also be lead and cadmium. And God forbid, uh, cesium-137.
0: So are a lot of, I mean, because I know a lot of people go through the forest and just forage for mushrooms, right? Is that kind of dying out where you really you really don't know? First off, I mean, you definitely have to pay attention to what kind of mushroom, and you'd have to know that, A, this mushroom isn't toxic, but B, you have to ensure that there's no trash. And I mean, we know that trash, there's trash in remote places in Alaska. Like, yeah. it. there's no place on earth i would imagine that's untouched by trash at this
1: point it's so true it's just like eating high up on the food chain you know the the mercury levels in tuna the, yeah. the you know the 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 you know contaminated levels in in crab you know it bottom feeders top feeders you know o- uh, oysters you know in the bay um you know yeah it's 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 really good to get in touch with that i read a gentleman that did a study when Fukushima was, was um, you know, evacuating, uh, uh, you know, radiation into the atmosphere and they were flushing in the ocean and it was entering into our atmosphere and people were like, oh no, you know, huge radiation clouds gonna come over here. Well, it wasn't as dramatic as that, but it did start showing up in things like milk. And in this one gentleman did a study, he went from Canada to Mexico and he was testing chanterelles for the, the cesium-137. And the levels were going up a little bit from Fukushima. And, you know, we live on this one biosphere. You know, I I read this article how they can date wine pre-Chernobyl and post-Chernobyl. Oh, wow. Across Europe b- because of the radioactive isotopes, you know. Um, and And, you know, it's like, I'm not one for big conspiracies and scares, you know, but I was interested in, I was very concerned about Fukushima and I was watching it and, and, you know, trying to sift through the conspiracies and people freaking out and what's reality, what's truth. And sure enough, you know, I, I went on the EPA's website and I looked up allowable uh, cesium 137 levels in milk. California is one of the, you know, the largest milk producers in the U.S. and we had to raise our cesium allowable levels up for the milk to be certified because they were going up from oh my god how many people know that yeah and it was this was on this is the epa's website you know this was this was obama had to you know approve this order like you know and and of course you know, any mainstream, you know, the EPA says that these are safe levels, you know what I mean? And 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 there's some truth to the fact that we're all exposed to small amounts of, you know, things all the time. There's asbestos in, you know, the gravel in my yard, you know, in my driveway, you know, there's asbestos in naturally occurring, there's, you know, lead, there's mercury, there's, you know, all kinds of stuff in the environment and our bodies do process these things in certain ways and um but we know also that at at, you know even minute amounts they are seriously harmful to our health
0: yeah the problem even with allowable amounts is you really don't want any i mean the goal is to try to keep all these heavy metals and toxic substances out of your body not Set a threshold where okay, yeah, we can we can have this amount, and it's probably not going to lead to any long term detrimental problems. But I mean, who knows? And how much you accumulate over a lifetime
1: can freak you out a little bit. Yeah, with if you look at a a a woman's you know a mother's milk, you know, in two thousand and twenty one, it's it's kind of scary. You know, the average accumulated toxins that are in breast milk uh are just astronomical compared to even your grandparents or your great-grandparents you know
0: yeah yeah it's frightening it's frightening once you start looking at really what is in our food that that really shouldn't be there and especially for farms and stuff like we have throughout california i mean there's a lot of chemicals and the pesticides all that leaches into your food it doesn't just
1: go away you know And our, you know, our population explosions of humans are, you know, uh, pressure on the planet and and pushing into pristine environments, you know, and, and destroying natural habitats. Is, is really bringing it to home uh, that we are on this really small planet and this biosphere and it's all so connected. You know, the dust from Africa, you know, lands across the, you know, southeast and adds nutrients and the pollution from China blows over into Humboldt's and you're just like, this is This is, this, it seems far away, but it's, it's not, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, even just putting it in terms of, you know, fungus, they can, so spores can travel for miles, can't they? If they
1: catch a good breeze or find the right circumstances, I mean. Yeah. Miles, thousands of miles. Yeah. Yeah. And have, you know, colonized every habitable place on the, on the planet. And, and if you, if you hang out with Paul Stamets long enough, you'll, you'll, come to believe they're probably flying through this space too so at your
0: farm it sounds like you're not just growing these mushrooms but you're also doing a lot of work in the community i know you were talking about with the hydrocarbons and the oil spill you were talking about how did that did that kind of form in unison with you growing mushrooms you kind of just had this outreach or was that an afterthought
1: yeah we you know uh, again, you know, Paul Stammons being a, a big influence and seeing him talk at that conference at the Bioneers Conference and hearing about the fact that I could grow this very easy, simple to grow Pleurotus ostriatus, you know, oyster mushroom. And that if I spilt some gasoline or some hydraulic fluid, which I've had, which any of us that, you know, have cars and equipment and chainsaws and have spilt, you know, chemicals on the ground that I could take that and I could just feed it to some oyster mycelium and I could remediate that pollution. And I was just so enthralled that I didn't need a PhD, that I didn't need, you know, a $20,000 piece of equipment, that I could just promote this in my community for people, this practical, you know, easy grassroots solution and that was definitely one of the uh, inspirations to get our laboratory and get our facility going and that's why we did kind of overbuild our lab and set ourselves up to be have a culture bank of you know a wide variety of fungal strains and be able to produce food and medicinal mushrooms and do remediation And look at, you know, creating fungal building materials and stuff like that, because it's so infinite, the potential that I just knew that, you know, we needed that in our, our community up here that I could be a source for people wanting to do projects like that.
0: Now, that's something I didn't know, is that there are quite a few mushrooms that have a lot of health benefits, especially with like inflammation with, you know, the chaga mushrooms or lion's mane. Is, are, and I've kind of seen them pop up more you in like coffee or tea. Is that, are you guys growing those types as well? When you said medicinal, I was that kind of piqued my interest.
1: Yeah, yeah. We um <clears throat> we recently just came out with our a line of three different tinctures. We have a reishi uh, tincture and a turkey tail tincture and a lion's mane tincture. So we're getting those out in the stores and we have those on our website and stuff. And um, but you know just like with a lot of sort of superfoods, they're just jam packed with nutrients and minerals and beta glucans and polysaccharides. And some of them just have crazy compounds that are either very, very rare to find in any of the other foods we eat, or just singularly, they have, you know, compounds that you just don't find anywhere else. Um, And so just like, you know, you can eat, you know, something that has a little bit of vitamin C, and then you can eat something that has a ton of vitamin C, you know, so it's the same thing with mushrooms, it's like, they're, they're, they literally are like a superfood. And some of them are so condensed with vitamins and minerals and, and nutrients, that that it doesn't take very much to provide what your body needs for, like you mentioned, you know, uh, contributing to your system, your immune system, you know, your 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 organs, your brain, your eyesight, your skin, and there's been just wonderful research coming out, you know, of of people using these to help with all kinds of conditions and all kinds of ailments. Um, you know, I never like to say something's like a silver bullet in itself, but uh, you know. Um, Paul Stamets company, Fungi Perfecti, they were doing some, uh, they just released a bunch of studies a few years ago with the American Cancer Society and they were doing turkey tail trials with people that were on chemotherapy. And the trials were showing that the people that were taking the turkey tail in conjunction with the chemotherapy had less side effects from the chemotherapy, recovered faster after the chemotherapy was done and stayed longer in remission that the the folks that were taking the turkey tail with it. And so there you have just this this extra tool. You know, it's not like, oh, take turkey tail, it'll shrink your tumor, but you know, obviously western medicine has a lot to offer us. If you need surgery, if you need chemotherapy, but going in it alone without looking at diet, without looking at supplements and other powerful foods and nutrients that can contribute to helping your body through that process. And then not to mention on a regular basis, if you're not in a crisis, like you have, you know, you're going through cancer treatment or something like that, but you're just looking at providing your body, like we talked about in a very stressful world that's becoming more and more contaminated, Providing your body with those essential nutrients that are found less and less in our food and in our soils.
0: These turkey tails. Do they
1: know why they're they're benefiting those chemo trials? I forget what the compounds were in them specifically, but again, the 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 mineral and vitamin, you know, packed into these tiny little, you know, polypore fungi. Um, And these polysaccharides and these beta glucans, we know now that those feed our, our system, they feed our red blood cells, they feed our white blood cells, they feed the components that our immune systems and our lymphatic system needs to function. Mm -hmm. It's just like this heresium compound in the lion's mane, they broke it, they've, they've, they've dissected this this really profound nutrients found in the lion's mane and it feeds our body exactly what we use to grow nerves and connective tissue in our body and it's not that this isn't also found in you know other things you eat you know it's just so condensed and compacted that you can make a tea or a tincture or a double extraction you know out of these mushrooms or just eat them also you know that You're, you're giving your body these, this exact nutrients and this exact recipe that it needs to provide your brain and your connective tissue and your nervous system with the, with these, with these compounds. And so. No, continue. So they, you know, again, not a silver bullet, but the studies that have come out so far showed that people with memory uh, issues, people with cognitive issues, this, this didn't, this didn't clear up all their problems, and make and oh, then they just their you know their 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 memory was just amazing. They took they did a three month treatment, but what they found was as the people continued to take these lion's mane mushroom, they showed small improvements in their cognitive function, and when they stopped, their problems came right back, and so it wasn't clearing up, you know, all the issues they had. It was just providing their body the ability to ward off and slow down the 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 cobwebs in the brain that are going to build up in all of us. If we are lucky to live into our 80s and 90s years old, our brains just don't function that way anymore. Our nervous system and our nerves don't repair themselves as fast as we age. Um, and then there's folks struggling with, you know, nerve disorders. I talked to a woman who uses lion's mane for her son, and she mentioned that he had Lyme's disease. And I was like, I think that's a bacterial infection. You know, I, I'm not sure that Lyme's mane is going to necessarily help with that. And she said, oh, no, it's not for the limes; It's for the limes, the nerve damage, the Lyme's disease has caused and the pain that he has from the nerve damage. And if he takes the lion's mane, it slows down the nerve damage and reduces his pain. And I was just blown away because I had not read that anywhere, but here was this firsthand person telling me that this this helps my son. And she bought five bottles and I was like- Oh, that's incredible. (laughs) I know another story, you know, I like personal stories, you know, of course I have like the fungal pharmacy that shows every compound that you can extract, you know, through alcohol and water and, you know, each mushroom and what we think those. you know, what we know those do in the body and stuff. So the science is there, you know, but I like the firsthand experiences. I was at the herb store and this, uh, two very large gentlemen walked in in full leather with giant Harley Davidson patches on their backs. And he proceeded to go in the back of, of Moonrise Herbs and buy all the reishi mushrooms she had. And I just couldn't help myself. I'm starting a mushroom farm. You know, I'm like, oh, excuse me, sir. He's like six, five, you know. And I'm like, what are you doing with the reishi mushroom? And he goes, I have Hep C, Hep B, Hep A, and I'm supposed to be dead. And this mushroom saved my life. And the doctors all think I should be dead. And they don't believe me. I started taking this mushroom, and I'm still alive. And he did not want the. T- they offered him a tincture, and he said, "No, the tincture doesn't work." He said, "I have to boil the mushroom for the tea." And I was like, "Wow, this is this is amazing. I, I need to know more." And I raced home, and I started researching. This is you know. Uh, 12, 13 years ago. So I didn't have the fungal pharmacy book yet. I don't even know if it was out, but I lo and behold, I find this Chinese medicine doctor's website. And there is all the compounds that are extractable through hot water and all the compounds that are extractable through alcohol. And sure enough, the alcohol, the water soluble compounds were known to help Suppress the bot, help the body fight viruses. And that's what this gentleman had infected himself with by contacting hepatitis. He was giving his immune system just enough nutrients to ward off this hepatitis and keep him alive. And he must have been, you know, in his 60s or something. And they, you know, they rode up on their Harley bikes. They were still like, full on like motorcycle riders. And he definitely wasn't your average person you see in the herb store, you know, and he had found this and he's gave me a clear, very abrupt, you know, explanation that, and very frustrated that his other friends that were dead would not drink this really strange mushroom.
0: Well, do a lot of people know about the health benefits of mushrooms? I mean, it seems like it's not, just out there in the public, at least not yet.
1: More and more, you know, we saw that movie, uh, Fantastic Fungi, come out, and you know that was in the theaters, you know, last winter. Um, you know, a lot of great books, a lot of really good scientific information. Of course, we're, lo- we're currently relying on a lot of studies done in Asia because you know the U.S. and and parts of Europe and stuff were just really behind the times. With with really analyzing and doing trials on 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 these mushrooms and and understanding what role they play, um, I, I, that Chinese medicine article then went on to explain that even though the water soluble compounds were what was most potent for say like a viral infection, the 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 alcohol soluble compounds that extracts all kinds of minerals and other nutrients is just as important for the body too. And so now we know that double extractions doing hot water and alcohol is a really good idea in general to take, you know, but in that moment, like the, the Harley guy, he, he knew that that's what worked for him. And he had, he had found that, you know, and that's what we see throughout, you know, eons with, you know, herbalists and natural medicine and Chinese doctors and, 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 traditional and indigenous knowledge of, of what plants and, and medicines, you know, provide for our for our bodies.
0: Yeah, it's really incredible when you start to dig into it and actually, you know, realize that a lot of the ailments and problems that you have can be solved through plants or through fungi or through these other remedies that, you know, were kind of written off as like fake medicinal, you know, just myths. But no, these plants really do have these healing effects that you can use and you can take advantage of if you know them and know how to do it.
1: Exactly. Oh, go, go, go. And I'm not one to, you know this Western medicine, if I, if I need an MRI, I'm going to go get an Yeah. MRI. There's no plan for that right now. <laughs> if we, you know, a huge portion of the population would be, you know, deformed, you know, and dead from polio. If we didn't invent the polio vaccine, you know, like I'm not, I'm not for a second going to be like, Oh, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't need to ever, you know, take antibiotics, you know, or something if I have gangrene on my foot, you know, I'm going to, I'm not just going to sit here drinking reishi tea. But I also know that, you know, as part of the 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 daily, you know, nutrients that I can give to my body while we're under a lot of stress, while we have a pandemic, viral pandemic, you know, breakout, I'm going to do whatever I can to to strengthen my immune system. Yeah. And vitamins and minerals, like you were saying,
0: that comes into play a lot in helping your body be able to prevent these diseases and viruses and ailments. And it's crazy when you learn that, you know, most Americans, especially, are vitamin deficient. Right. Just completely below the levels that we should have, especially with vitamin D, which I didn't even know until recently that vitamin D is actually a hormone that your body needs.
1: Right. And even Dr. Fauci said that can help boost your immune system, you know, like unfortunately he just mumbled it once it really should be on the cdc's like
0: yeah they should be talking about that
1: all the time because you, know I mean? you know you're talking if, even if it's a 10% reduction in, in infection rate in a society or something if you take vitamin d and drink reishi tea you know it's like well that's that's hundreds of thousands of people on the planet you know like what 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 would that reduce in the person that contacts it transmits it, you know, or whatever, you know, while we wait for a vaccine or, or, or what have you, it's like, we know that, you know, just living on Twinkies and, and, and soft drinks is, is, is not satisfying our body's nutrient needs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to get the statistic wrong, so don't quote me on this, but I think it's something like low 90s percent of people who have contracted COVID were vitamin deficient. And of the, I be surprised. yeah, of the percent that had it, if they, if they had, uh, you know, correct doses of vitamin D there, they didn't have severe reactions to cor- to Corona that it was just a minimal case. If they showed any symptoms at all, which really shows how important vitamin D is
1: for COVID, especially, of course, of course. And, you know. Uh mushrooms are just the strangest organisms, right? Like they evolved and, you know, uh, fungi and plants broke off on the family tree. And then, you know, eons later, you know, uh, animals and fungi broke off. You know, we're more related to fungi than we are to plants. And- oh, wow. I didn't know that you know, think about your, your, the, your digestive tract, you know, you put food in there and then you secrete enzymes and then you break down the foods and then you extract the carbohydrates and nutrients out of it. And it, 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 if you look at the mycelial hyphae, it's, it's almost like your intestines turned inside out. You know, it, it, it's, it's not an animal. It's not a plant. It's this really strange organism, but it produces, you know, vitamin B. You know what I mean? Which is really only produced by animals, but it's also produced by fungi and yeasts. You know, so you're right in this like realm, especially if you're a vegetarian, especially if you're B vitamin deficient. You know, you're you're getting these vitamins from eating this fungi. Um, that being said, it's always important uh, since we're having a you know podcast on mushrooms that people thoroughly, thoroughly cook mushrooms. It's a really strange phenomenon that seems to primarily be in the US, not that I'm a huge world traveler, but where we have decided to produce button mushrooms, which personally are kind of bland and serve them raw on a salad bar. When the chitins that make up the tissue of the fruiting body are completely indigestible to your GI tract and will literally pass through your whole digestive system without being broken down. So if we're talking about the nutrients in mushrooms and we're talking about the medicinal properties of mushrooms, we should probably also emphasize to people that you need to thoroughly boil or thoroughly cook your mushrooms to get the nutrients out of them. Is that all mushrooms?
0: You You should cook all of them? Okay.
1: Yes. Definitely going to make note of that. Yeah, totally. So strangest phenomenon to put it out raw on a salad bar. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't seem like they should be doing that at all. So I haven't, I haven't traveled throughout Asia, but you know, my, my general understanding of people that I've met and, and, you know, a culture that, Goes back, you know, uh, a, a thousand years of you know collecting and and recording the health benefits of reishi mushrooms and cordyceps and and shiitakes and all. You know, they they there's a long practice of you know boiling and cooking and tincturing and and thoroughly cooking your mushrooms to uh, to eat.
0: Yeah, it it doesn't make sense why they'd put something out that is not digestible. I mean, that doesn't make sense, especially where you're eating it with a salad. Come on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're you're wasting your money, you're not getting the nutrients and vitamins and protein, you know, out of the mushroom. So so thoroughly cook your mushrooms. So when
0: you are making these tinctures, is there any benefit to using those over just separating out the minerals and, you know, all the benefits from with water or with alcohol or how are you making the tinctures?
1: Yeah. So we do a, uh, what's called the double extraction process where we do a 190 proof. Um, We use Humboldt distilleries, local organic ethanol, and we, we um, soak the mushrooms in the alcohol. And like I mentioned, there's water soluble compounds and then there's alcohol soluble compounds. And then we take the mushrooms out of the alcohol and we boil them in, uh, you know, some reverse osmosis water. And then we add that tea basically to the to the alcohol extract. And then we have this double extraction. So so trying to get get, getting the best of both worlds, Um, because there is there is some things that are are more extracted through, you know, each method.
0: So if you're just focused on trying to get the most you know, more minerals and more vitamins, the tincture would probably be the way to go as opposed to just eating the mushroom,
1: right? Right. Because eating eating the mushroom or eating, you know, myceliated, you know, heat, you know, myceliated brown rice, or you see that on the market a lot now is mycelial capsules and stuff. And that's basically the the again, the vegetative part of the fungus grown on like brown rice or sorghum. And then they'll heat it. You know, cook it and then dehydrate it and powder it. You know, and so that's basically like equivalent of like the tea. It's a, that's a heat extraction. You know, the alcohol is a, from what we've researched so far a really key component for some of the you know compounds you you really want to get into your body. Um, and so we felt like that's like a, a really great a combination to to be able to offer people. And of course, there's nothing wrong with cooking it. Again, that's just the heating. That's Mm -hmm. like making a tea, you know, and so you're cooking it. The problem is, is I can take, you know, pounds, a few pounds of lion's mane and dry it and crush it into a jar and pour alcohol over it and boil it. So I can give you a very condensed dosage of lion's mane tincture that you can take every day and you can keep, you know, have in your pocket while you travel. Whereas, you know, going to the store and paying 10 or 15 bucks a pound, it's more of a novelty thing. Like, oh, let's get some lion's mane and put it on. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. almost
0: like taking a multivitamin where you're you're getting yeah. straight to the source. Nothing wrong
1: with it. Of course, eat a healthy diet. And of mm-hmm. course, we love eating mushrooms, you know, some, some breaded fried lion's mane is at the top of my list of favorite mushrooms to eat, you know, but, um, but yeah, if I'm really wanting to boost, you know, strengthen my immune system and there's a, you know, massive viral pandemic killing millions of people on the planet, then (laughs) I think I'm just going to, yeah, dose up every day. Yeah. Just be on the safe side. (laughs) Lion's
0: mane is really interesting because of that nootropic effect. Is that common across a lot of mushrooms or is it really lion's mane in particular where you see those cognitive benefits
1: it it lion's mane just has yeah kind of the standout these heresium compounds that that are that are have been linked to uh uh the the brain and and nerve and connective tissue you know uh uh, strengthening yeah
0: yeah i've seen that pop up in a few you know, different supplements, lion's mane, and they're promoting, you know, oh, it's going to help with your cognition. You're going to be more focused. Your memory is going to be more on point. And I just, I thought that was fascinating. I haven't tried it yet, but I definitely, I definitely want to try some lion's mane.
1: Yeah. And, and, and and it's nice, you know, if, if you can get a tincture for, you know, 15, $20 that will last you a few weeks and you can take it every day, then it's like, 20 bucks worth well spent to see if it feels right. You yeah. Know? It's not this you know huge investment or whatever to you know uh, uh, see if it works or not. and 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 though and you know it depends what's going on with you know your cognitive issues or what's you know what 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 cancer or diabetes or low blood pressure or high blood pressure you know, what What are you dealing with? You know, it's like, there's, it's hard to know exactly, even, even when you go see a doctor, sometimes it's a guessing game, you know, what, what's, what's the underlying issues that, that you're having, um, that, and, and what mushroom or compounds are going to, you know, or vitamins or nutrients or food or diet is going to really help you, you know, with your, with your ailment. Mm-hmm. And so all these tinctures that
0: you make, are you guys growing the mushrooms in-house that you use for those as well? Yeah. Yeah.
1: We, okay. do, we do wildcraft uh, some of our turkey tail just cause it's so prolific here, uh, you know, natively. Um, um, but we, and we grow a little bit too. Uh, but the reishi, we grow two different kinds of reishi. We make an immune tonic tincture and we do two different, uh, reishis. And we also do dried shiitake in that cause shiitake just has some, you know, amazing amounts of B vitamins and, You know, and other just minerals and stuff that are incredible. So we thought that was a really good kind of mix that we call the immune tonic. And then we just have the straight up lion's mane and the straight up turkey tail. Of course, you could take them all together too. It wouldn't matter. You know, these aren't these aren't like heroic herbs. You know, it's not like you're taking something and there's a toxic a load of it, or you can, you know, and I take it for too long or, you know, when you read on the, yeah, you're not
0: going to overdose on yeah. and it
1: says, don't take for more than two weeks at a time or something, you know, or you're taking something that's a little hard on your kidneys or your liver or something, you know, these are supportive, you know, adaptogens, you know, these, these, if, if you don't need it, you pee it out, you know, you eliminate it, you know? Yeah. And so so um it, it's it's real supportive like that. Of course, there's your rare contraindicating, you know thing if somebody has they're on you know blood pressure medication and Reishi can like lower your blood pressure a little bit, you know, or something you know like mm-hmm. you know or you' uh uh you know uh hemophiliac or something you know and and Reishi thins your blood or something you know, of course, there's always it's always good to educate yourself, you know, on, on what you're taking.
0: And so how long does it take to grow these mushrooms? I know we said for like the truffles, it can be like 15 years. Is that pretty common for fruit bearing
1: mushrooms too? Yeah. And well, again, the, the 15 years was to allow the hazelnut trees to mature. Oh yes. Yeah. At that stage you would start getting truffles, you know, truffles do, I think they take, you know, a a year or two to, to grow, you Mm -hmm. know, Some of the big ones may be longer or whatever, right? You know, um, like that truffle that was, they auctioned off that was three pounds or whatever. Oh, wow. In Europe Europe a couple of years ago, you know, um, it it went for like $100,000 or more or something. Oh, man. yeah. But um, so generally speaking, uh, oyster mushrooms, which we grow a lot of, we can produce those within about uh, three weeks. So we can, you know, it, the whole process takes a couple months. But the the colonization of the fruiting substrate, when in our case straw, um, that we pasteurize and inoculate, uh, from inoculation onto the straw to the beginning of fruiting is about three weeks. So we're harvesting mushrooms in about a month. Um, reishi much longer. The the we inoculate sawdust that takes a couple months to colonize. And then the mushrooms take about a month to grow. And how many mushrooms are being
0: produced? Is it a fairly consistent number or it's different with each colony? With
1: with each one, yeah. So people call it the biological efficiency, the BE, right? And it kind of goes down the list where you have oyster mushrooms again, which have some of the highest biological efficiency. So you can take 10 pounds of straw and you, and you wet it, you know, wet straw, you know, and you can grow uh, 10 pounds of oyster mushrooms. Um, and so oyster mushrooms are often the intro, introductory to a lot of people doing cultivation and also small farms that want to set up. They're the easiest, they grow the fastest, they're also the cheapest you know, at the grocery store, you know. Um, but people love them, they're super popular, super nutritious, super healthy, loaded with protein and vitamins. Um, and have been looked at in all kinds of scenarios where there's food insecurity, there's natural disasters. What else produced protein in four weeks? Not eggs, <laughs> not fish, not chickens, maybe mealworms. If you're into eating mealworms that, that you know, yeah. but next to insects, it's like that's a really big, fast turnaround from straw to protein. You know, from agricultural waste to protein, you know, mm-hmm. for people to eat. So driving, you know, huge semis into disaster zones set up to be fruiting, you know, uh, uh, fruiting environments, um, setting up tents where people could grow the mushrooms. And that is kind of, again, in uh, places throughout Asia, South Asia, Africa, India, you'll see a lot of oyster production because that a village a small village can with basic basic materials and even if they have to buy the spawn everything else can be done outdoors in a non-sterile environment to produce oyster mushrooms and then you have things like shiitakes you know shiitakes have a, a you know pretty high biological efficiency and then lions mane kind of a little bit lower and then reishi even lower And these also you'll see reflecting almost the exact prices that you get in the store. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oysters are the cheapest, shiitakes are the next, lion's mane's are more expensive, reishi's the most expensive. Um, You know, just to use examples of things that we grow.
0: And so oyster mushrooms—they're the ones that have the high protein count. Oh,
1: most of them do. Um, But um, uh, um, this just just as an example of something that grows that fast that produces. Mm -hmm that much protein yeah
0: do they make any protein powders out of that i don't know if you would know because I, I know don't. that they started making like hemp protein and that's a pretty right. popular yeah, yeah plant-based protein powder i don't know if they make any mushroom ones but that sounds like that would be a great a great cool. way to get clean protein
1: yeah and you're seeing products you know starting to incorporate just ground up mushrooms in like you know, vegetarian patties and, and, and burgers and, 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 you know, mushroom jerkies and things, you know, so that's becoming more popular too. I didn't even know mushroom
0: jerky was a thing. They just dry out the, the mushroom. Just, just as you would do
1: with meat, you know, marinate it, you know, and then slice it up real thin and then uh, bake it in the oven a little bit and then dehydrate it. And you end up with this, you know, whatever you want it to taste like, kind of spicy, chewy, vegan jerky. Huh. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. And some mushrooms lend themselves more, you know, just like different, you know, vegetables in your garden and different meats and things lend themselves to kind of different dishes Mm -hmm. and have different textures and, you know, different, uh, uh, you know, stand up better to, you know, boiling or cooking or frying or baking or, you know, patting or what have you.
0: And so for someone, since we're in these COVID times, for someone looking to get, you know, a tincture or mushroom that kind of provides the best overall, you know, vitamin count and mineral count, what would
1: you recommend for that person? Yeah, the double extraction is, is is the way to go, the way to go for sure. Um, There's been some really good research and a lot of this, you know, is, is kind of cutting edge and stuff We're we're finding out more and more as time, you know, goes on and more people do more studies and, and, you know, analyze the nutrients and, and these mushrooms, the, the, the dehydrated mycelium is a lot cheaper to produce. And so you see these mushroom powders at the store and they're growing the mycelium, like I mentioned on brown rice or on sorghum, and then they're, uh, baking the, the the grain with the mycelium and then they're grinding it and powdering it, you know, dehydrating it and and powdering it. You have a lot of, you know, it's still a lot of brown rice. You're getting the mushroom out of there, but that's why they're cheaper is because it's a lot easier to grow. Uh, Paul Stam has published some studies showing that some of the compounds in the mycelium were in a larger concentration than they were in the fruiting body. But there's also been some studies showing the exact opposite for other certain compounds. And so when the mycelium, when the fungi is in this vegetative phase of reproduction and producing more and more and more mycelium and more and more mycelium, it, it, there's, there's stronger, you know, compounds that you might find in that. But then when it goes to produce the fruiting body and it develops this huge mushroom, it pumps a lot of the nutrients and minerals from the mycelium up into the fruiting body also. So there's been some kind of uh, differencing of opinions and a lot of really interesting studies coming out of what is the most powerful medicine you can get from these processes. What can you grow the mycelium on to enhance the nutrients in the mycelium? Because whatever it's growing on, just like your garden, is what ends up in your vegetables. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what ends up in the mushroom. So that's like a really powerful tool, too. So that's being discussed more and more. So you're seeing different farms using different techniques and different substrates, which are producing different concentrations, there was one company that was looking at growing mineral rich i think it was selenium selenium rich substrate and harvesting the fruiting bodies and selling them as a selenium nutrient supplement you know because it was condensing it and making it bioavailable by basically breaking it down and concentrating it up into this fruiting body you know, so, so what, what, what's the difference then if you grow something on, you know, organic substrate, what if you grow it on, you know, what if you add extra minerals and vitamins to the substrate, make it more nutrient dense. Yeah. What if you eat the mycelium versus the fruiting body, what mushrooms, what compounds of each mushroom is more potent for what ailment you're trying to address that maybe's in the fruiting body or maybe is more in the mycelium. Mm -hmm. So right now we just decided to just use fruiting bodies because we I've read so much research and it's it's it's, you know, traditional medicine and indigenous knowledge going back so long of what's in these fruiting bodies and all the nutrients that's condensed and pulled out of the substrate and forced up into this reproductive, you know, uh, giant mushroom. Um, and so, you know, we, we might start incorporating myceliums, you know, over time, but th- there's no way to extract out the sorghum or the brown rice. And so inevitably you're, you're, you're eating a lot of brown rice, you know, so the dosages on those bottles, take a cup, take a teaspoon a day, you know, m- might not give you the, the best bang for your buck, um of, of the compounds you're trying to get, you know? So I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for more, more research to come out. Uh, but in the meantime, we feel, we feel most confident of using fruiting bodies for our extraction, the mushrooms themselves.
0: And are there, I don't want to say adverse side effects, but any repercussions from using the brown rice? Cause I know that, or I've heard that, you know, because brown rice still has the husk that It's actually harder for some people to digest and can lead to some, you know, higher counts of inflammation and some other gastrointestinal issues. Not, I don't know if that's like, that's a common occurrence or if that's just for a small subset of the population, but I've heard that that kind of floats around a little bit out there.
1: If that was something you were avoiding was more starches, you know, in your Mm -hmm. diet or brown rice wasn't on your diet or sorghum you know, obviously they pick brown rice over, you know, wheat or something that has gluten in it, you know, that that would lower more of the population's, you know, desire to eat it, or somebody had, you know, celiacs or something and they couldn't eat gluten. Um, You know, so that's why they use things like sorghum and and brown rice to grow the mycelium on. And that's why when you look on the back of the bottle, it says grown on, you know, myceliated brown rice, you know, well we grow mycelium on grain all day, you know, and it's like, Yes, the mycelium starts breaking down the starches and growing more and more mycelium, but it's still predominantly grain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, that's the bag. It's like it's converting it, you know, but we know when they grow a fruiting body, it's just 100% mushroom. Yeah. There's no way for me to take the mycelium out of the brown rice.
0: Mm. Wow. All right. Well, uh, we just did an hour and a half. I don't want to take any more of your time, but thank sure, you, sure. thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I I really enjoyed. I really
1: enjoyed that. I feel yeah. like I learned a lot too. And I know originally you reached out to the Humboldt Bay Mycological Society, which I'm you know a member of, and also help with some of their events and and uh, you know workshops and and mushroom hikes and stuff. Um, but just to give them a plug, you know, since that was how we met. Yeah. They, they're just an incredible local organization in Humboldt County here. It's, um, I think, $15 to join. That gets you access to an early entry to the fair once we have fairs again, <laughs> um, which are held at the Arcata Community Center in, the, in November, the weekend after Thanksgiving, I believe, or right around there, mid November. Wonderful event for those of you who haven't been. Hundreds and hundreds of mushrooms from all over this Humboldt and the surrounding couple counties, um, just in a, a, a bonanza of like, a, you know, walking through a wildflower show or something. Of mushrooms that I've been in the woods, you know, up here for 20 plus years, and mushrooms I still haven't seen. Because when you send out 20, 30 people just to collect mushrooms for the fair, you're going to end up covering more topography than I could ever cover in 20 years, you know? Um, And so it's just brilliant. And we have this incredible Goldilocks zone right here in Humboldt County between the ecological diversity we have, the elevation, the habitat. We have sometimes our mushroom fair breaks records of species collected on the west coast. It's not that Washington, Oregon, they do have more mushrooms than we have, but in that one week, when you have a mushroom fair, you're hoping that you can collect as many mushrooms as possible for for people to see. Well, it's very hard over uh, 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 you know, months because the mushrooms don't last, so it has to be mushrooms collected in the last three days for that mushroom fair. Well, because of that Goldilocks zone, because we have such an incredibly diverse climate here, this is a wonderful just, you know, fairyland of mushrooms in Humboldt County for people to see. They also do hikes. I led a couple of hikes this fall, um, identification hikes. They have uh, meetings in the fall, winter and spring when there's not a pandemic. Uh, that members can go to. They're actually open to the public, but the membership gives you access to the the emails and the newsletter. Um, And they have presentations. You can bring mushrooms to get ID'd and just a great, wonderful um, uh, group to get involved with if you're interested in. Yeah.
0: I was going to say they have a bunch of seminars too, where they'll like, Teach you about these different mushrooms and how to collect
1: them and how to grow different types and stuff too, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I help with their Facebook page. You can check out my Facebook page, Fungi Farm Facebook page, and Instagram. They also now have an Instagram page and uh, a Facebook page, and then their their website um, has the sign up for um, to become a member on there too. And some of the old uh, workshops and videos we did, they they're now up on the Facebook page too oh fantastic i hope people take advantage of that totally totally and when we're not in a pandemic we usually do workshops and demonstrations at the mushroom fair on log mushroom cultivation and oyster kit growing and we'll give talks about our micro remediation project and how people can you know clean up polluted water and soil and stuff and we do a lot of lectures like at the universities and at local businesses in town and stuff too so um you know people are always welcome to get on our email list we always post on Facebook too and Instagram oh that's fantastic hopefully COVID ends soon then so people can start going to those yeah we're trying to think we were trying to think maybe doing like a a live cooking class or something and uh, maybe sometime this spring or something on on cooking with mushrooms because that's part of you know demystifying incorporating these things in your diet is what do I do with this really yeah You know, people, people cook it into a mushy pile. People, you know, they, 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 people get grossed out, you know? And it's like, I like to equate it to vegetables. Like if you boiled lettuce, you know, it it was not going to be good. You know, it's, it's the same with like seaweed. I used to teach uh, seaweed harvesting and, and, and seaweed processing classes. You know, some seaweeds you can pickle, some seaweeds you can cook, some seaweeds you can toast, you know, if you just, if you don't know and you try to just chew on nori, it's tastes like a plastic bag. Because people don't know all the nori they eat is toasted, you know, and once you toast it, it crumbles in your mouth. And it's the same with mushrooms. If you don't know how to cook this kind of mushroom or that kind of mushroom, it can really go bad.
0: sideways pretty quick. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And once you make it taste good, people, people flock towards it. Yeah.
1: So now I have all these friends where it's like, you know oh my, my wife doesn't like mushrooms but she likes them when you cook them you know oh man <laughs> so it's just like well it's just the technique it's just the technique you know yeah like, yeah make, you know make it exciting You know. come make to the class exciting. we'll show you how to cook them exactly oh that's cool so if we don't do it online we'll, we'll try to do it in person in the fall or something okay fantastic well people have that to look forward to great nick well thanks for having us on
0: yeah thank you really i had a great time talking with you
1: awesome